Hello, Renewal. We had some recording issues out in our outdoor service this last weekend, and so today I am recording the sermon that I preached outdoors so that those of you who missed out or weren't able to be with us can have an opportunity to get caught up. Uh, this message is on the subject of persecution from the perspective of the first century church. This entire last series has been about lessons from the early church. Uh, well, we are looking to our first century brothers and sisters to gain some perspective on who God is, who we're called to be, and how it looks to live the kingdom out. Uh, throughout this series, we've been acknowledging that our culture and our modern context for living so influences how we read scripture and how we think of God, how we think of ourselves. And, uh, and so living here today, because of those influences, we operate under general assumptions about the world and about God that are very different than the general assumptions that the authors of Scripture operated under a couple thousand years ago. So really this series has been all about trying to climb inside the mindset of first century believers. And the hope is that with the benefit of that, being able to climb inside their mindset, that we might understand God a little bit more completely, that we might know him a little more and be drawn closer to him. What a different world we live in, too, than our first century brothers and sisters. You know, when people first started becoming followers of Jesus, there were no church buildings to go to. There was no established clergy. There were no seminaries. The, the church didn't have any legal rights or special protections. Uh, and here today, we, at least those of us in America, we live in a quote-unquote Christian nation. And the cross is seen as a, a virtuous symbol. The church is still an influential institution in many ways. Studying this week, I learned that religion in America is over a trillion dollars a year part of our national economy. The church did not command those kinds of assets in its first years. And really what these differences between now and back then represent is, is in many ways a very different societal position for those who are belonging to the church. In the first century, those who belonged to the church were largely outcasts among an oppressed and already oppressed and conquered people, the Jews. And so you take the Jews who are oppressed and conquered, and then a group of them become outcasts among those, these followers of Jesus. And, and you're really hanging out at the bottom rung of society in the ancient Roman world, right? Uh, the average early church member was much closer to the bottom of society than probably the average modern American church member. I recall a time a couple years ago when one of our missionaries who works and, and lives and serves the gospel overseas uh, once commented to me after visiting Renewal that, that our church is, really is an upper middle class type of church. And, you know, no one had ever made that observation, at least out loud, to me before. And, and really the idea took me a little bit by surprise, like, oh, we're we're upper middle class, really? And you look around and you start to see people and you're like, oh man, I I guess that's true. On average, we, we are. Of course, on average, the early church was definitely not upper middle class. I don't, uh, such a class might have not even necessarily existed in Judea and ancient world. Uh, but but in that position of coming from the bottom rung of society, God used them to do miraculous things. You know, in, in Acts chapter 5, God has been working through the apostles. He's been performing signs and wonders, especially performing miraculous healings. And, 
And those in authority, the, the upper class members of society, those who have power in society, did not want this gospel to spread. And so they, uh, they confront the apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. And there we read that the, the high priest and all of his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And so they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. This is what happens when you are someone living without power in a society. Uh, if the powers that be aren't happy with what you're doing, you end up in jail. No trial, no, no, uh, no recourse. You're just you just end up in jail. But here we see God intervene on behalf of His people. In verse 19, we read that during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. He said to them, "Go and stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life." I love that. This is the way the angel describes Christianity, a new life, a new way of living. Uh, for the first century church, their, their following of Jesus wasn't simply a change of where they worship one day a week or, or, or who they pray to, but it was, it was, an, it was an all-encapsulating decision that changed their entire lives. Anyhow, at daybreak, the disciples, as they had been told, began to teach the people. And so the rulers, the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jews that had them thrown in prison, they hear about these people you threw in prison are out in the temple courts preaching. And so essentially they come and they rearrest them carefully this time. Uh, and, and they bring them before the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body again. They question them. They instruct them not to teach in Jesus' name anymore. Peter replies with this famous line saying, hey, judge for yourselves if we should obey you or obey God, uh, which is everyone's favorite verse when they're engaged in a little civil disobedience in their own society. Um, the apostles' arrest ends with them then being flogged and then released and, and commanded not to speak the name of Jesus. Uh, so they've been arrested unjustly. They've been accused of nothing legitimate. They, they commit themselves to obeying God and not the authorities, and then they're flogged and they're beaten unjustly. And these are the kinds of things that we say, this just shouldn't happen. This should not happen. Uh, this shouldn't happen in any society you're living in. It's not right that people would be uh, arrested and assaulted unjustly. And yet, how do the apostles respond to this injustice? Verse 41, we read, the apostles left the Sanhedrin and they were rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name the name of Jesus Christ. We can read right over it, but if you're paying attention, this is stunning, right? They, they left after being arrested and beaten. They left rejoicing because they've been counted worthy. Not only this, but you know, upon leaving, they don't decide to arm themselves to the teeth or build some kind of protections or, or military resistance to ensure that this kind of a thing, this kind of injustice never happens again. It certainly never happens to us again. Instead, they go out from there and day after day, they're in the temple courts. They're going from house to house. They never stop preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Consequently, different ones of them end up arrested and abused again. So you imagine this kind of scenario happening today. I mean, if you were being flogged by some legal body for preaching the gospel, how would you respond? How do we emotionally respond to unjustified, unfair punishment? How do we respond in this, in this modern day? I, I mean, some things translate well. Like We understand. We, we can grasp with our minds the idea of a kangaroo court 
unjustly accusing and punishing people. We know this still happens today in different parts of the world. How do we, as a people of God, respond to this kind of unjust punishment? How do we respond to this kind of persecution? Are we the kind of people who walk in the same footsteps as the apostles before us? Or have we, because of the influence of culture and the sense of rights, have we charted our own path? The next chapter in the book of Acts, we have the first martyr. He was a deacon, a man by the name of Stephen. He's arrested by the Sanhedrin for preaching, and he testifies and he preaches the gospel in his trial before them. And, and they, they completely lose control. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, verse 57, after Stephen has proclaimed the gospel, it says at this, at Stephen's testimony, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's important. He comes up later. Verse 59, it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died. So here's Stephen. How does he respond to unjust persecution, unjust execution? It's interesting to me. It's stunning to me that his prayer is not, Father, deliver me. Father, save me. Father, avenge me. His prayer is, Lord, forgive them. And at this point, I think it's safe for us just to admit that our modern mindset is pretty far from our spiritual ancestors. I couldn't even, <clears throat> I couldn't even fathom praying that kind of a prayer in the midst of suffering myself. I couldn't even imagine. In the next chapter, Acts chapter 8, we read that on, the day, on that day, on the day Stephen was uh, executed, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him. But then Saul, the man who was holding the coats, began to destroy the church. He went from house to house, and he dragged off both men and women, and he put them in prison. In prison to face trumped-up charges, and many of them to face execution. So the church is scattered. In reading about this, it's triggering for me. I mean, this is one of our greatest fears from the last year and a half or so, that the church would be scattered, that we would lose our ability to gather, and that we would be scattered. And faced with that prospect, of course, many of us are ready to fight for our right to gather. I, it is interesting to me that some who are the most vocal about fighting for the right to gather, especially when COVID restrictions were closing us down for a period of time, those who were especially vocal about that uh, can't be bothered to actually engage in the discipline of gathering maybe once or twice in a, in a blue moon. I mean, at times, what we're willing to fight for and what we're actually willing to do is uh, two very different things. Um, if we're persecuted, if we're scattered, I think many of us conceptualize that as being the worst thing that could possibly happen. And, and it may feel that way in the moment, you know, that being scattered is the worst thing that could possibly happen. But, you know, throughout the testimony of Scripture and throughout Christian history, when faithful disciples are being persecuted, when faithful communities are being scattered, uh, this 
almost always results in exponential growth of the family of God. After we read the churches scattered uh, in, in the next few verses, Saul, this, this persecutor, is demanding letters to go to Damascus and round up followers of the way there. Why? Well, because scattered Christians are preaching Jesus in Damascus and the church is exploding. Paul's caught wind of it. He's got to stamp that fire out before it gets any worse. As the story continues in the book of Acts, a narrative that was centered on a nucleus of Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem up to this point, that narrative begins to move from city to city throughout the ancient world. And we're reading an account where Peter goes to the city Lydda to visit the Lord's people who are living there. Again, the scattered church results in a church springing up in this other city. And before you know it, there's believers in Joppa, there's believers in Caesarea too. In fact, in Caesarea, it's the Gentiles there who are becoming followers of Jesus. And so the scattered church in Jerusalem results in the cities throughout Judea and Samaria suddenly catching fire with the gospel. The scattered church becomes a tool by which God spreads his gospel with the world, with the lost. In Acts chapter 11, we read in verse 19 that those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and, and cities like Antioch, and they were spreading the word only among the Jews. But then some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and they began to speak to the Greeks also. They were telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord's hand was with them. And there in Antioch, a great number of people believed and then turned to the Lord. And suddenly now we're seeing a narrative of, of the gospel breaking even out of Judea and, and Samaria. It's a narrative that then continues on in the book of Acts and, and, and eventually centers on the ministry of Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul, who is basically chased from city to city throughout the known world, Macedonia and Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, and Rome. He's going from city to city, region to region, and, and he's hitting them all, and he's enduring all kinds of hardships and arrests and beatings. He's executed one time, and, and, and he's constantly being driven out to the next city to reach the next place, and, and he's constantly talking about his intentions to move on, to share the gospel. And I think in many ways what he is doing is, is trying to live out a fulfillment of what Jesus says at the beginning of the book of Acts to his disciples, just before he's taken away. He's there gathered with his disciples in Acts chapter 1, and they're asking him, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh, they're still focused on this idea that Jesus wants to build a physical kingdom in Israel. And yet he says to them, hey, it's not, it's not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority when the kingdom will fully be restored. Uh, he says, but you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And until persecution actually happened, the church didn't leave Jerusalem. They didn't get beyond step one. They didn't get beyond uh, step one of that proclamation by Jesus that this is what God is going to do through you. And I believe that God used first century persecution to fulfill these words of Jesus. That it was these words coupled with the persecution that kept driving people like Paul to keep moving further out, further into the ends of the earth to keep preaching. You know, for the first century church, persecution was a way that the gospel spread. And for the first century church, it, it was um, 
It was an honor for those who would attempt to follow Jesus to be persecuted. I mean, after all, especially the apostles, they had witnessed their Messiah's methods firsthand. You know, the zealots wanted a Messiah who would conquer all others with force. And yet these disciples of Jesus, the apostles, had, had, had although even in the moment they maybe embraced the idea of a Messiah who would raise his arm against Rome and order his people to fight uh, for, for his right to rule, but, but his apostles witnessed a Messiah who, when, when the Messiah was given to the people by God, it was not a Messiah who would raise his arm against Rome, but it was a Messiah who, by the apostles' words, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, something to be grasped, something to be leveraged for his own authority and power. Rather, the Messiah, when he was sent by God, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant and, and then being found in the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of a man. So imagine God humbling himself to the point of being a man, yet he humbles himself even further. He became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. And the message of his followers was let that mindset be found in you. Let the mindset of our Messiah, our humble, self-sacrificing Messiah, be found in his people. And don't let present appearances fool you. In the first century church, in an age when persecution seemed to be raining down from all over the place, the, the, the apostles says, don't let these appearances fool you. Our faith is a faith that is conquering the world. One sacrifice at a time. Our movement is a movement, not that's built on the triumphs of champions or heroes, but it is built on the sacrifices of martyrs and the faithfulness of servants. The miracle is that God overcomes all the powers of darkness by these methods. And the miracle and the wonder is that God has honored us with a part to play in his victory if we'll embrace his methods. So how do we think a little more like our first century brothers and sisters? How do we live more like them when it comes to the topic of persecution? First off, I think we shouldn't see persecution as something to be feared or avoided. Rather, I think we should see it for what it is, God's tool for accomplishing a couple of really important things. One, it accomplishes the spread of the gospel. This is counterintuitive, but it spreads the gospel. You know, one of the fastest growing church populations in the world right now is the church in one of the most persecuted environments. That's the country of Iran. Who would have thought, right? Who would have thought this is how it is? You would think when persecution rains down, the church would melt and shrink away. And yet this is not how the spirit works. Persecution spreads the gospel. Persecution is not something to be feared and avoided. Persecution is something to be embraced, for it is accomplishing kingdom work. The other thing persecution does is it really allows us an opportunity to join Christ in his suffering. Why would we want to join Christ in his suffering? Because the reality of the gospel is that it, where there is no joining Christ in his suffering, there will be no joining Christ in his victory. When the Spirit invites us to follow Jesus, to become his disciple, it bids us to take up our cross and die. There is no room for self-preservation. There is no room for, uh, for putting myself above others for followers of Jesus. 
And persecution is a wonderful opportunity for us to lay down our rights, to suffer on behalf of the gospel. So my prayer is not that we would be persecuted. <laughs> my prayer is for, uh, for God to have his way in all of our lives and to work through the circumstances of our lives. And that when persecution comes, because if we're following Jesus, uh, the, the servant is not above the master. If they hated him, they'll hate us too. When persecution comes, uh, we would not flee it, we would not resist it, but we would embrace it as God's plan for building the kingdom in our lives and through our lives. Let's pray. Holy, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have been faithful to carry your people through centuries of persecution. We ask that you would carry us through whatever versions that persecution might take in our lives, in our culture, in our modern context, uh, and that you would empower us to walk through such things with grace and with the determination to lay ourselves down and see your kingdom grow. Lord, there is no greater goal in our lives than to see your kingdom grow in our hearts and in the communities around us. And so we just commit ourselves to that goal and uh, we commit ourselves to you whatever that may mean. In Jesus' name, amen.